Hey traders, welcome to episode three of the Duomo Trading Podcast. I'm Nicholas Puri. I hope you're doing well, that you've had a good week so far, and I hope that you're ready to focus because today's topic can be seen as a little bit complex, especially if you're not used to economic topics. What we're going to be touching upon is the real estate industry in the US. Now, this is some research that we did at Puri Kassar AG earlier in the year. We released it as an article on Seeking Alpha and also it was published on NASDAQ. And we did also release a video on the Duomo Initiative YouTube channel about this, including a discussion with Lorenzo Berriozza, who is our chief economist at Puri Casa. So even if you have watched those videos, I do recommend listening to this again, because then what we're going to do is we're going to have Lorenzo back on the podcast in the next episode. And we're going to be talking about something that's very similar to the real estate issues, which is the car loan situation. It's all part of this consumer credit bubble in the US at the moment, which could be a big disaster coming up soon. And so we'll be discussing that car loan research that we've been doing, which will be released as an article as well this week. But in the meantime, what I wanted to do was just to take that same topic of real estate. We're going to start off with the, the sort of initial research piece, and then we're going to move into the discussion that I had with Lorenzo. So this podcast is going to be a bit of a long one, but hopefully if you start to listen through it, pick up some of the bits that we're talking about, then we can transition into the car loans in the next episode. And then we've got some more consumer credit stuff coming up, uh, such as the student loan situation, which is a big disaster. And you'll notice as well that these things are coming up in the news a lot recently. It's becoming a bigger, bigger problem. And when we talk about things like the US stocks and how, you know, the US economy may be due a correction, or at least in terms of the stock market and that kind of thing, I think that these are issues with the, the sort of household credit, consumer credit situation that could have uh, a disastrous knock-on effect from those issues with US stocks, or at least be part of the overall bad situation that will come. So they could be a catalyst, they could be part of this sort of negative spiral. So let's get into it. Whether you're a supporter of President Trump or not, there's no denying that he certainly has the ability to coin a catchy phrase that can really stick in the public mind. We've been gifted with many catchphrases and names over the past 12 months. Crooked Hillary, drain the swamp, and of course, make America great again. However, surprisingly, the one that has defined the beginning of President Trump's time in office is the somewhat ironic fake news. You are fake news. What's particularly surprising about this is not that the phrase itself has caught on in such a global manner, but that it was such a revelation to many people that sensationalism sells and newspapers are prone to twist the facts to build a story. In fact, if we're to believe the mainstream narrative, we've been in a period of global deleveraging since the 2007 and 2008 financial crisis, which President Trump is about to drag us out of with his expected spending. Further bolstering the idea that we're reaching the tail end of this decade-long hangover are the recent developments from the US Department of Justice, the DOJ. RBS have announced that they've set aside a further $3.8 billion to deal with litigation by the DOJ regarding their involvement in toxic US residential mortgage-backed securities. And the ink is still drying on Deutsche Bank's own settlement of $7.2 billion. Unfortunately, the hope that the financial crisis and subsequent period of deleveraging will soon be a distant memory of a tough lesson learned the hard way is wishful thinking. In fact, 
A quick analysis of the facts not only shows that the financial industry clearly has a short memory, but also that this supposed period of deleveraging is nothing but fake news. This video is based on an article we recently published on Nasdaq.com and SeekingAlpha.com. This is The Deleveraging Myth, The Revival of US Real Estate Concerns. The term deleveraging refers to the action of decreasing financial debt levels by attempting to pay off current obligations being held on the balance sheet. The global popularity of the term grew in the aftermath of 2008 as policymakers focused on re-establishing some form of stability in the global economy. However, nearly a decade since this process began, current figures suggest these actions were potentially nothing more than a charade. Two major institutions in particular, the McKinsey Global Institute MGI, and International Centre for Monetary and Banking Studies ICMB, have produced reports that provide tangible evidence which bring into question the state of global deleveraging and suggest critical reconsideration may be in order. In the 2015 paper, Debt and Not Much Deleveraging, MGI studies the changes in debt and deleveraging in 22 advanced economies and 25 developing economies. The troubling conclusion clearly shows that all major types of outstanding global debt are increasing, as you can see from this chart. This outcome provides further incredulity when you consider the low interest rates and accommodative monetary policies enforced by banks worldwide. These advantages were not seized upon to perform the process of deleveraging that we were led to believe would be undertaken. A similar conclusion was reached by the ICBM economists in their report on this topic. Their analysis of national accounts data results in the worrying finding that global debt has actually been rising even as a percentage of global GDP since the 2008 financial crisis. Given the data in the charts we've just shown, the statistic that stands out as most concerning is the substantial growth in US household debt. When we further break this category down, we find that the latest statistics regarding mortgages are particularly distressing. One may even suggest that the country is creeping back towards the same conditions which triggered the bursting of the real estate bubble in 2008. The following series of data paints a picture for real estate that is certainly not rosy. The median sales price for new homes has been rising strongly since 2012 and is now evidently at a level much higher than that observed prior to the 2008 crisis. This price increase is also represented in the Case-Shiller Index, adjusted for inflation in this chart, which shows a clear, steady increase since 2012. While the prices are rising, real estate sales activity is also increasing, as we see from the new one-family houses sold. This suggests there is potentially an increased interest in speculative home trading. While the data shown thus far may depict a sector that is growing and thriving, once you offset it against other metrics, the reality of the disequilibrium becomes more apparent. In addition to the rising house prices, we are also seeing a sharp increase in the long-term fixed mortgage rate. The subprime rate has also been rising, as can be observed in the Zillow mortgage rates. These combined factors 
lead to the obvious outcome of US affordability declining. In isolation, this series of data does not appear too concerning. If real estate is growing and thriving, prices will rise. Unfortunately, as a result of that, affordability will inevitably reduce. However, when we observe what real effects this is having, we begin to understand the dire situation that is potentially being created. As witnessed in the build-up to the financial crisis, foreclosure activity has started to climb. The increase of 27% represents the largest percentage increase since 2007. With the regulatory environment experiencing significant change since 2008, the legal risks associated with mortgage activity have increased. As mentioned previously, there have been a number of big cases, even as recently as January 2017, of financial institutions receiving large fines for unsustainable mortgage business. As a result of this, traditional banks have begun to move away from low deposit and low credit lending. However, this by no means excuses them from being involved in risky practices related to mortgages. As recently as 2015, Goldman Sachs launched its so-called bespoke tranche opportunities along with other banks which appeared to simply be a new name for a customised version of a CDO, collateralised debt obligation. In the hunt for yield, banks are willing to operate with a short memory of previous mistakes. Non-bank players have started to mop up the riskier loan business instead, as shown by the current share of low down payment loans. As a result of this, the non-bank share of mortgage originations has been steadily ascending since 2009. Non-bank entities must comply with the same regulations as banks when it comes to lending. However, there is a gulf in ability to withstand difficult financial times, as they have far less access to resources than the traditional banks do. For example, they are not allowed to tap emergency funds through the Federal Reserve and their deposits are not protected by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corp. This means, if delinquency rates rise to the point of which there is an issue with liquidity for one of these institutions, they will be forced to request short-term financing from the traditional banks. A study by the Mosava Ramani Centre for Business and Government explains some of the key concerns about non-banks and the counterparty risk they represent if a real estate downturn once again emerged. One area of alarm is the reliance on Federal Housing Agency FHA, insured loans, which are 100% protected by the federal government. Since FHA loans are more affordable to first-time and subprime borrowers due to the low deposit requirements, this increases the potential severity of a housing market downturn. Approximately two-thirds of all FHA lending is originated by non-banks. Surprisingly, the FHA mortgage insurance premiums are not linked to the credit score of borrowers. This is a situation that has the potential to eventually be exposed as unsustainable, considering half of the loans originated by non-banks are to borrowers with FICO scores below 660, otherwise known as non-prime. Although the data and overall picture we've outlined is certainly concerning, it does not necessarily represent imminent danger. As mentioned in the final section, 
The tightening of financial regulations has gone some way to helping provide more stability in lending products. However, the need for deleveraging and the issue of disequilibrium persists. While the financial world may dismissively move from one key concern to the next and have a short memory of past issues that appear to have been dealt with, we do not necessarily need to fall under the same ruse. While the immediate focus may be on so-called bigger picture issues like President Trump and his spending to make America great again, one should be keeping a close eye on the growing issue of consumer credit and scrutinizing any negative shifts in key metrics such as those outlined in this video. While debt continues to increase since the financial crisis, the ability to deal with any reoccurrences of similar problems will be severely hampered by the distinct failure thus far to not only reverse the situation, but at the very least, to keep our powder dry. So hi Lorenzo, thanks for joining us. Let's get right into it. So it was clear from your research that this supposed period of deleveraging that I've heard so much about, about how Trump's going to drag us out of it with his spending, but otherwise we've been in this 10 year period of deleveraging, supposedly, from your research, it's never actually taken place. Can you explain a bit about that? That's correct, that's correct. I mean, I know it's a term that has been out there in the press uh, for quite some time. Um, many analysts as well as uh, um, journalists have been talking about it extensively in the past uh, months and years about the leverage. But as a matter of fact, data show something completely different. As a matter of fact, uh, the overall debt, both consider at, um, if you consider at institutional level as well as household, has increased significantly. And so, I mean, we are now in a much worse situation as we were, you know, in, in 2007 and 2008. So the picture definitely looks, looks much, much uh, more concerning than, uh, than what it used to be some years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that we're actually in this situation where this could be a problem again, because clearly since 2007, 2008, actions were taken to try and fix things. But what's evident is that that didn't include this sort of large-scale deleveraging. Well, there's um, two things to consider here. Um, one is the fact that debt has been increasing. Um, and, of course, the data clearly shows that. And the other is that, um, essentially, the, uh, the uh, hope the central banks uh, have had so far through programs like the quantitative easing, for example, was to, of course, encourage and increase the propensity uh, to spend in, uh, in individuals. Now, this is not happened because despite the large amount of money being printed and being, being available, uh, what has been declining is the money velocity. So despite there's a large amount of uh, banknotes out there, so to speak, people are not spending. So these two facts combined and considered together uh, definitely, I mean, paint a, a pretty worrying picture uh, if then considered in connection with what's happening in other markets, such as, for example, the one in real estate. Mm -hmm. In part one of this video and in the article, obviously, we picked out consumer debt as being a particular area of concern. That we saw like every single category of debt had been increasing, but consumer debt in particular was the area that we're most worried about or wanted to focus on in particular. So can you just elaborate on that a bit and explain why that's the case? Well, it is because of the sheer size, essentially. Um, I mean, if you look at, for example, the data they were showing about the median sales price, which has been steadily increasing in the past years, as well as 
um, you know, the, the, the um, trend of interest rates. Uh, or things like the affordability index or the, uh, the, the foreclosure activity that has been, that the U.S. have, uh, have experienced, have been experiences up to now, you do realize that there's this dangerous and threatening potential that is in place. And uh, what it takes is, uh, is some kind of event being economic, financial or sociopolitical to basically trigger uh, another, you know, another crisis like the one that happened in 2008. But this time it would be probably worse than what happened years ago uh, because central banks basically are not equipped to respond properly to, to such crises. So uh, it would be worse. It would definitely be worse. Okay, so in a minute, we're going to come on to the potential triggers for a crisis and also the knock-on effects in the wider market if a crisis does take place. But for now, let's focus in on this consumer credit problem. So we picked this scenario of key concern. We're also going to be releasing more videos and articles about other areas of this consumer credit and debt in general around the world. But first, let's focus on real estate. So that was the area that we looked at in the article and in the video. And so can you just talk us through the story of what the statistics of the key metrics, what they're showing you at the moment? Sure. Well, basically, the data show, I mean, a pretty pretty clear picture, which is the overall uh, median sales price of, uh, of, house, of houses in the U.S. is been increasing. Um, and of course, uh, people are again uh, mortgaging more and more money uh, to buy houses. Um, the difference compared to 2000, 2008 are that now, nowadays, uh, non-bank players are playing a much more important and relevant roles uh, as opposed to traditional banks. So right now in the mortgage origination market, you have a lot of non-bank players, which of course um, are, are, are less constrained by regulatory, uh, for example, uh, and regulations in general. Um, and, and what's happening is that, of course, they're also less capitalized uh, compared to banks. So they're they are becoming more important. They're actually uh, originating much more loans than banks. Um, the, the overall quality, I mean, of the, the, the pool of applicants is uh, as bad as it was in 2008. So you have, again, a, a pretty big share of non-prime uh, non uh, applicants, non-prime rate applicants that are being uh, granted a mortgage uh, to pay a house that is basically soon becoming overpriced. So the overall house of market is, is heating up. And again, all the various elements are in place now for um, another crisis like the one that happened in 2008. And the data clearly show that. And just for our viewers, could you differentiate between non-banks and banks just so that everyone's clear about exactly what that distinction actually is? Yes. So what ha what's happening here that, of course, uh, as opposed to 2008 now, um, a, a, strong, I mean, a very strong component of mortgages is being granted by non-bank entities. What do we mean by non-bank entities? These are companies that specifically operate only within the mortgage, the household mortgage market. They are not necessarily... Uh, from a legal perspective, consider uh, financial institutions, and as such, they're not uh, heavily, as heavily regulated as banks. And of course, it also means that from a capital perspective, they're not subject to regulations such as Basel III or, you know, or other similar, or other similar regulatory piece, which means that, you know, they offer less 
uh, guarantees shall the market, you know, um, start to deteriorate and shall the number, for example, of, uh, of um, defaults increase. At that point, it would be interesting to see what happens because precisely because they are not uh, as capitalized and as financially strong as banks, they will have to turn to banks in order to, for example, find a solution for a temporary liquidity crisis. So at that point, it would be interesting to see how banks will respond to that type of situation because, uh, as I said, they are, uh, they are not as capitalized as banks are. Um, so and. They, they, of course, have also brought some benefits into the market and definitely a new perspective because as uh, compared to banks, they have definitely streamlined the processes of uh, um, uh, asking for a mortgage. And, 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 and so they have, in a way, brought some revolution in the industry. But nonetheless, the price of this revolution is that uh, that flexibility uh, w- was uh, achieved at the expense of solidity, basically, from, from a financial point of view. So as you mentioned, the non-banks are benefiting a lot from the traditional banks not being involved in the riskier lending business as a result of regulation changes and that kind of thing. So they are benefiting. But if delinquency rates on the non-prime lending starts increasing to the point that liquidity becomes a problem for these non-banks, then they're going to be forced, because they've got no other option, they're going to be forced to actually go to the traditional banks to request funding. So, of course, there is a knock-on effect for the traditional banks. But in addition to that, there's also an involvement by traditional banks in things like collateralized debt obligations, CDOs, which we saw in the build-up to the financial crisis. And you would have expected that they'd learn from those mistakes, but they clearly haven't. So can you speak a bit about what these sort of wider effects, like the knock-on effects would be for the traditional banks, even though they're not directly involved in this sort of risky lending business? Yes. So what happened is, I said, if a liquidity crisis, uh, um, in case there's a liquidity crisis, of course, those non-bank entities will immediately turn to banks in order to secure, um, you know, liquidity in order to, to meet their obligation. Now, what happens in, you know, in the case of, uh, of traditional banks, of course, uh, for the, I mean, until recently, they have, uh, they've sort of shied away from uh, uh, highly speculative instruments like the CDOs that you mentioned. Although now there are signs that um, you know, there is an increasing appetite for similar, for similar type of instrument. The reason being that, of course, uh, with the, uh, um, the bond market being depressed in terms of interest rates, uh, banks are, have been increasingly seeking instruments that could offer um, at least some return uh, in you know, if he's interested in investing in, in bot type of instrument, and so they're now back into the you know into the uh, the quest for searching uh, similar searching for similar similar type of tools, investment tools, and apparently, for example, we have the case of Goldman Sachs, who's been uh, uh, designing these very specific uh, debt tranches. They are very liquid, I mean, for institutional clients, of course, uh, but compared to CDOs, of course, uh, they, they don't have a market, so they are very liquid, and they're also very bespoke to the client's needs. So what happens this time if, again, the, the size of the market shall ever increase, uh, again, uh, they're going to have, uh, they're going to, we're going to be finding ourselves in a situation where, uh, financial institution will be, will be holding on their portfolio instruments that are highly liquid and uh, highly bespoken to their needs. And so 
you know, they will have to, they will lend themselves to the risk of being right off as, uh, you know, because there's, there's no market out there for, for this type of instrument. And so the dynamic is picking up again, although at a much slower pace. It definitely sounds like this could be an absolute disaster if a downturn does take place in the housing market or in the global economy in general, which will have a knock-on effect for the housing market. So are there any metrics that you're following closely to see if a downturn is going to happen or any key events that you think could be a trigger in the process for starting a downturn, like, you know, a stepping stone towards that? Are there any metrics or key events that you can identify? Well, I said it's, it's going to be extremely difficult this time to predict you know, which will be the trigger. It could be, as said, an economic event. It could also be a social political event. Let's not forget that political uncertainty is definitely one of the major risk factor, at least now in 2017, uh, worldwide, because with all these political changes happening all over the world, um, that's definitely, I mean, any of these can definitely be a trigger for, for this financial crisis. Let's just say that, uh, what we are, what we are actually uh, experiencing in the real estate market, as well as what we, uh, what we're also experiencing in the uh, stock market, with stocks, you know, and indices being uh, severely overpriced, again represent a threat, a very tangible threat that could be ignited by just about anything. Um, it's it's difficult to really pinpoint which which you know which would be the the triggering event, but there's uh, I mean with the situation I mean with the overall markets both you know in real estate as well as stocks uh, proceeding at this pace uh, in the direction in which is proceeding of course it just um, enlarge uh, the, the the scope of you know potential um, you know events that could that could uh, be the detonator for a crisis so uh, as we go forward we need to sort of uh, be widen our gaze and, and consider even more uh, many more you know factors and, and events than you know than in the past and the central banks are really going to struggle this time around right i mean it wasn't a walk in the park for them last time but this time i mean yes. what can they do they're going to struggle sure i mean it's 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 very simple. Uh, it's enough to have a look at the uh, balance sheet of the U.S. Fed, and you will realize that uh, basically their their assets has expanded from roughly seven eight hundred billions dollars in two thousand eight all the way up to uh, over four trillions uh, nowadays. Uh, it's it's an increase that you know has never been experienced in history, uh, and so I mean if you think about it. Uh, shall a new crisis, you know, erupt anytime now, there's the concrete risk that they will not have the dry powder to contain that risk because what are they going to do? Uh, launch another QE uh, program. But I mean, I, 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 what is the limit? There must be a limit up to which, you know, the, the balance sheet of this bank can be expanded because let's not forget that uh, all uh, modern currencies, all reserve currencies in the world, the dollar, um, the, uh, the um, uh, British pound, euro, Swiss francs, etc., are all fiat currencies, means they are not backed by any commodity or any tangible asset. So they are largely based on people confidence the moment in which this confidence is eroded because uh, the um, the monetary supply keep expanding at an unsustainable rate 
well, you know, you, you see the problem. People will not just buy into the narrative that, you know, central banks uh, have the power to fix the situation. So um, this time is, is going to be different. This time is definitely going to be different. Absolutely. It's going to be very different this time. Well, Lorenzo, thanks a lot for your time. So guys, that's the end of today's podcast. I hope that you agree with me that it's a really interesting topic, but at the same time, it's extremely concerning. We don't quite know how this is all going to play out yet, but we are going to keep researching and releasing more information about this situation and similar consumer credit situations. So like I said at the start of the podcast, we are going to have Lorenzo back on for the next episode and we're going to talk about car loans. So make sure you come back for that. Make sure you follow us and subscribe on any of the podcast platforms that we're on, such as iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. I think that probably you listening to this know more about the podcast platforms than I do, but believe me, I am going to get very familiar with them. Make sure you leave a rating and share with any friends that you think might be interested. That way we can continue to grow, gain more interest from people, and that way I can encourage more people from my network, important names to come on the podcast and be interviewed and bring you their insightful knowledge. So guys, I appreciate you listening. I'll see you in the next episode or hear you or talk to you or whatever I should say at the end of a podcast. (laughs) Take care, guys. Bye-bye.